Grace to you and peace from God our Father, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who comforts us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our reading for the text for our sermon today is the one from Jeremiah chapter 26. And as we think about Jeremiah, he is often referred to and remembered as the weeping prophet. He preached the kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem both before and after its destruction under the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. As God raises up the king of Babylon up against Jerusalem and all the kingdoms of Judah because their hearts were far from the Lord. They had every advantage. They had the temple. They had the kings of Israel, the sons of David. And before Jeremiah is given this prophecy, we know that the book of law was recovered under King Josiah. Jeremiah, in the early parts of his ministry, got to see the the zealous reforms that Josiah tried to implement. As they have the law of Moses, he tears his clothes when he hears it and joyfully goes after it. But after Josiah dies, his sons take over, and they don't care. They knew the first commandment, you shall have no other gods. Yet the allure and temptation of idolatry was too great for Israel. And they had built high places throughout the kingdom of Judah to worship Baal and Asherah and all the other gods that the nations had invented for themselves. But they thought they were fine. They had hedged their bets. They maintained the priesthood. They still came to the temple of the Lord. They would invoke the name of the Lord their God to keep his feast days, do all the outward bits of worship at the temple. And they believed that as long as they kept up appearances, they'd be fine. God would not allow his temple to be destroyed. He wouldn't suffer that sort of indignity. God would not remove the sons of David from the throne in Jerusalem. God would not allow the city to become a desolate wasteland. It wouldn't be conquered. Nebuchadnezzar and all his strength and all his power wouldn't tear down their city. They wouldn't be deported to Babylon or Egypt. And anyone who claimed anything in that sort was unpatriotic. They didn't have enough faith. They were disturbing the peace, and they would have to go. That's what happened to Jeremiah in our reading today. The Lord, in his mercy, raised up Jeremiah as his prophet to warn the people of Judah what would happen if they didn't repent of their idolatry. But their hearts were hardened. They would not listen As time and time again in the entire ministry of Jeremiah, he would prophesy. He would lay out their sins and say things like, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm bringing disaster upon them that they can't escape. Though they cry to me, I will not listen to them. And then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry out to the gods to whom they make all their offerings, but they cannot save them in the time of their trouble. For the gods have become as many as your cities, O Judah, and as many as the streets of Jerusalem are the altars that you have set up to shame, altars making offerings to Baal. 
We also get the call to repentance. It says, if you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things, all these altars to Baal, from my presence, and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth and justice and in righteousness, the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, sow not among thorns, circumcise yourself to the Lord, and remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. God is calling them to repent. He's calling them out from the disaster of their idolatry. And here we see how deeply God yearns to restore his people. How much he desires for them to repent so that he would continue in blessing. He even goes to the extent of saying, I will suffer the indignity upon my own name and allow some foreign nation to destroy my temple, all in an effort to call you back to me. They didn't hear it. They would not listen. And so now God tells Jeremiah to explain exactly what's going to happen to them and to their city, to them what's going to happen to their temple, as Jerusalem would be abandoned. The temple would be burned and torn down to the ground. It would be a lair of wild beasts and jackals. No one will live there because the city will be destroyed and all of its inhabitants will either be killed or taken away. And the invocation of Jerusalem itself will be considered a curse. If you don't repent, he says, this destruction will come upon you. And as the people heard it, they were angry. The king's men, the priests, and the so-called prophets took offense to this word from God because the devil had deceived them into holding on to false confidence. What was so offensive about what Jeremiah said well, it was the idea that they could fail. It was the idea that anyone would call them faithless. Here they all are in the temple, after all. They were worshiping the Lord. They were respecting the customs and the rituals Moses had commanded. Oh, sure, there's idolatry going on, but what do you expect? At least we aren't those cursed nations with all of their idols. We have the Lord, and we'll be fine. St. Paul says something to this. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. In other words, they may have had all the outward signs of worship, but their hearts were far from the Lord. They needed to repent. They had the temple... But they also had their idolatry, and they needed to be cleansed from it. They needed their sins to be forgiven. And that speaks to us as well. The people of Judah were so confident in having the temple, yet they didn't remember what the temple was for. 
It was for the worship of the Lord who was to send his Messiah into the world. It was to be a house that embodied the mercy that God was going to show in sending the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. All the prayers, all the rituals, all the washings, all the sacrifices, all the incense burned, the Day of Atonement, the Mercy Seat, the Yom Kippurs of it all, was meant to point to the coming of the Messiah whom they were to be in anticipation of. But they had turned it into something else. It was a national symbol. It was proof that God was on their side. It was a false confidence that showed them that they had the Lord's favor. It was not the house where God would gather the people to repent of their sins and to receive mercy and comfort from their God. No, it was a tradition. It was a tradition of the people that was maintained for a sense of national unity. The temple was not a house of prayer and a solemn place of the worship of the Lord that he had erected as a foretaste of the feast to come in the worship of Jesus, but it was a lucky charm that had to be rubbed so that they could go on doing all the other stuff they wanted to do without fear of reprisal. Anyone speaking about the coming destruction of the temple, they were disturbing the peace. They were being unpatriotic. They were tearing the carpet out from under them, as it had become a source of false confidence and an idol in and of itself. And so what was God going to do? He's going to tear down the idol. God loves toppling idols. We see this sort of behavior, though, happen in the church. As God, in blessing and in providence, raises up buildings and institutions and programs within the church today. And they serve their purpose for a time. They serve the purpose of proclaiming the gospel. They serve the purpose of discipling the people. But then as time goes on, sometimes those institutions do what everything governed by human beings eventually does. They falter and lose sight of that purpose. And they become sources of false confidence. You can can see that as they even can become idols. And so what does God in his mercy do? Well, he tears down the idol. Perhaps you can see this sometimes even in our little circle of the world, in our little circle of Christendom, the LCMS. So many faithful people will look at the LCMS, and if they see that LCMS logo on it, they see the CPH, Concordia Publishing House logo on it, they say, it's good. It's past review, it has to be faithful. If it's LCMS, it must be good, right, and salutary. But that's not always necessarily true, is it? As we know in the recent decades in the church, that uh, the LCMS has had people led astray. Not because the doctrine is false, but because the men who lead her are often weak. We can see this in the size and congregational stability as well as we see congregations that once boasted hundreds of members now closing their doors forever. We see sometimes that God has use for institutions and programs in the church for as long as they're capable of fulfilling his purpose, but then 
As soon as they falter, as soon as they fall, can God remove them? Nothing in this world lasts forever. Barring the return of Jesus, there will be a point in time in history where there is no longer a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Barring the return of Jesus, there will be a time in history where all of the things we see is so familiar in the church, and the things that often we base our confidence on in the church may not be here anymore. Nothing lasts forever save one thing. The word of the Lord. Everything else is perishable. And if God would allow his holy temple to be destroyed by unbelieving barbarians, what does that say for all the institutions that we think are immutable, perfect, symbols of righteousness? The LCMS will falter and fracture congregations will close schools and colleges will close and god will open and create new things to serve his purposes none of it lasts forever save only the word that is preached and promised god does not need our temples our synods our congregations our institutions our programs our schools and when one of these things falls away from its purpose god can tear it down and raise up something new And so we as Christians must be humble enough to understand that God does not need the things that we have built to be the God and Savior of the world. It's the other way around. We need him. We need his mercy over our sins. We need Jesus. We need his word front and center. God will raise up. God will tear down. God in his mercy in Christ, through all of it, remains the same. We need to know our sins and repent of them. Jeremiah preached the destruction of the temple and the leaders of Judah, they they were outraged. Not because they loved the worship of the Lord, but because they didn't need or want their sins to be brought to light. They said Jeremiah must die because they were being robbed of the false security that they wanted to have in their sin. Do not cling to human institutions and human inventions. They are not Christ. Cling rather to the word of God. Bear fruit in keeping repentance. This was the failure of the leaders of Jerusalem during the days of Jeremiah. They had ignored the word. They had neglected repentance and saw no need for the forgiveness of their sins. They had the outward symbols, but they lacked faith that believed in what that outward symbol stood for. And they had turned the temple into an idol. And the true God who worked through and with the temple was ignored. And in Jeremiah, we see a great example of faith. He spoke the word knowing that it was going to land him in a heap of trouble. The word mattered more than his life. The word mattered more than his freedom. The word is what gives life. It's what restores the troubled soul. It is what reveals the grace of the living God. It's what makes sinners into saints. What was Jeremiah calling the people to do? Believe in the word of the Lord. Not to insult the people, not to shame them. But it was God's earnest desire that his people return to him, 
That's what Ezekiel, a contemporary of Jeremiah, is writing as he says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his ways and live. Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? See, God's love for sinners is seen in how patient he is in dealing with the people of Judah. He sends people like Jeremiah to preach. He calls his dear ones back to him. God did not allow the Jews to kill Jeremiah because he still had a lot of preaching to do. Even after the temple was destroyed, Jeremiah would preach the word of the Lord. And then he would console the people with the word of God, saying, The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have continued my faithfulness to you, and again I will build you up, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. And he also says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. After the false hope is torn down, there's nothing but the true hope of the gospel of Christ. That's what makes the word so immeasurably valuable to us. Because we, like sheep, often go astray. When we are left to our own thoughts, when we pursue our own desires, our hearts can grow hard to the will of God. And before we know it, we're stumbling off in our own direction and we lose sight of our good shepherd. And he calls us back. He seeks the lost. That's what we have in his word. The scriptures give us life. And so we must guard that word in our hearts. That is what Jesus is saying at the end of our gospel lesson today. Much like Jeremiah, Jesus was being threatened and accused for doing what the Lord had called him to do. He casts out a demon, and immediately, what do people do? They start blaspheming and accusing him of casting out demons in the name of Beelzebub. Jesus says no. He warns the people about the danger of their apostasy. Sadly, the devil is very successful in deceiving and lying. He was able to get Christ's opponents to other all sorts of blasphemy against Jesus. He was able to get them to deny him as the Christ and the Son of God. He stirred up great hatred towards Jesus so that people were blinded to the word that was testified. And he does the same today. When the devil attacks the word, it's because he is attacking Jesus. And when he attacks Jesus, he's attacking our life and our salvation. And there will be those who are deceived and fall away. And they will leave the faith and they will deny Jesus. And when that happens, their spiritual condition is worse than it was at the beginning. As Jesus says, when an unclean spirit has gone out of a person and it passes through waterless paces, seeking rest and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept, clean, and put in order. And then it goes, brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And at the last state of that person is worse than the first. He's saying that if we deny the Holy Spirit that gives us faith and keeps us in the faith, then once again we'll be under the influence of the evil one. Not only that their hearts will be hardened to the word of God, but it will be harder for that person to return after falling away. 
And that's why Jesus calls us to be on guard. Because we have to know how crafty our enemy is. We must know what we have been given by Christ, and then we must stand in what we've been given by Christ. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When Jesus says the word keep here, it's the same word as guard. We guard the word in our hearts. We guard the Lord in our minds. We can only combat the devil with God's word. We guard the sacred scriptures and how we live. And we hold the times set aside to read the word, to hear the word, to pray in the word as sacred and wonderful. We do this because it's the time that Satan is driven off. It is when the Holy Spirit works faith in the believer and brings about the life of forgiveness and new obedience to Christ. And as this happens, we're truly blessed and blessed forever. Not with the the false blessings that the devil wants to entertain us with, but the eternal blessings of the loving God. As Satan covets you, he wants to make you his own. And so what does God give us and what does God set before us so that that cannot happen? Well, he gives us his word of promise that creates saving faith. As we think about this, we remember that the Lord is stronger in his grace and his love than Satan is in all of his hatred and his lies. As Satan is armed with all of his armor and weapons, Christ is stronger than he is. And so when Satan comes with temptation and deception and lies, Christ comes with forgiveness and truth. He is the will of God. Jesus is the word of God made flesh. He's God come down from heaven to save us. And there's nothing Satan can do to stop him from doing what he does. See, Satan wants you to deal with your sin by making it familiar and easy and comfortable. And to this, he'll strive to twist every good thing into something that is evil. He'll make good things that the church cherishes into an idol. He did this with the temple of the Lord. The easiest sources of false confidence are often the things that we connect to the church. And so as long as I have X in my church, we can be counted as faithful. We don't need to worry about our sin because, hey, we're LCMS. We don't need to be worried about our sin because, oh, hey, we have a school or we have a beautiful sanctuary or our pastor is so whimsical and smart or anything else the church would boast over. He wants you to live in your sin and get used to it so that you wallow in it. That's not what Jesus does. Christ deals with your sin by forgiving it. In Satan's way, it leads to death. Christ's way, it leads to life everlasting. We do not need to find false confidence in the strength of our institutions, how much money we have in our accounts, how how powerful or how reliable we think um, our leadership is. No, rather we find strength in our weakness. And St. Paul is told by Jesus, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content to be weak, to be insulted, to suffer hardship, to be persecuted, 
and to face calamity. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We come before Christ as sinners. That's what Christ comes to redeem you from, your sin. He does this by being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In death, Jesus gives us the redemption of his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And you see it all about the cross. It is all about how Christ has died for the sins of the world. This is the ultimate and final defeat of the devil. This is how the devil's attacks are rendered useless and pointless. His deceptions are revealed for what they are, as he is revealed to be the weak, raging, evil foe that he is. And so, dear Christians, consume your lives with the gospel. Read your Bibles. Come to church. Strive to keep the third commandment by holding God's word sacred and gladly hearing it and learning it. Guard that word in your heart, in your mind, in your life. Devote time to it. In that word, you receive Christ. This is who God would have you cling to. Nothing else. Christ. Jesus has died for sinners, and that forgiveness of sins that Christ has won for us is received by faith in his word. The word boasts great promises. It says when you're baptized, you're freed from the kingdom of the devil through the forgiveness of your sins. It says when you are blessed with the gifts and benefits of the cross of Christ, you eat and drink his body and blood. God is merciful to sinners. He is faithful in keeping his promises. His word will accomplish what it proclaims, and so cling to that word. Cling to that mercy that is found in Christ alone. Everything else will fade away. That mercy that is proclaimed in the word will never fade. Cling to what is imperishable. Guard the word and keep it. Let us pray. Father of all mercy, cleanse our hearts of all idolatry and false confidence. Help us, Lord, to place all of our confidence and hope in knowing that you alone are faithful. Defend us from the lies of the evil one who can even make good things into idols and keep us steadfast in your word, that word that saves and gives us life. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in the true faith to life everlasting. In the name of Jesus, amen. Please rise.